Is living in the past a kind of sickness? Is it something we all do, either all the time or from time to time? What can cause a person to start living in nostalgia, in a nostalgic case or living in the past? That's something that I'll be talking about with my guest Nadia Ho on this episode uh, because the book that we are discussing is basically all about that. One could argue anyway, it's Taipei People by Pai Xianyong, although that is of course Taipei Ren, not Taipei but Taipei in Chinese, and the correct pronunciation of um, Pai Xianyong's name should really be Pai Xianyong, but this is Taiwanese lit, so we're using the strange Wade Giles. I assume in, throughout the interview I refer to the Taiwanese spellings as Wade Giles. I could be totally wrong there, I didn't verify that, and after all these years I really should have known, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's what the um, the show's going to be on, Taipei people, quite excited to be doing this one. But before I can treat you listeners to the interview with uh, Nadia, and well, between Nadia and myself, I suppose it's more of a conversation really these days, um, before we get to that, we're going to have the Treasure Fig News, the translated Chinese fiction news. Four items today, and they're all pretty interesting. First one, and this is actually related to me, because uh, I have secured myself uh, a job, a you know, a real grown-up, full-time, not just freelancing uh, job. Just as the UK is coming out of lockdown, perhaps there is a correlation between those two events. And because I'm shifting away from my freelance work, one of the companies I was working for, Elaine Charles Asia, who you might know better as their fiction imprint, Sinoist Books, they're looking for a replacement, basically. They're looking for a publishing production freelancer, or perhaps freelancers, to help them produce their books. So these are fiction and non-fiction books, mostly translated from Chinese, all related to China in some way or another. And they're looking for someone who, you know, as you might expect, knows their way around the Adobe suite, um, is extremely fluent and capable of handling English and English copy. And obviously, if you're listening to the show, you probably have the either language ability or general knowledge uh, related to China that would certainly make you a stronger um, applicant. If you can have an applicant for a freelance position, I suppose you can. If you're interested, there's an email in the show notes at the contact over at ACA, Elaine Charles Asia, who you can reach out to. If you'd like to know more about the company, I've worked for them, so you can also contact me through the old Church of Fig social media if you want to know more, but I'm sure Daniel from ACA could tell you more too. Um, next news item. So this is um, just kind of bearing in mind that June 4th has passed since the last episode. That's the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protest. Well, I suppose the end of the Tiananmen Square protest, the massacre there that happened on the square. Um, and the journal Asian Cha has been posting lots of um, lots of related content. Um, content is a horrible word to use to describe Tiananmen. Sorry about that. Um, related uh, media, posts, poems, literature commentary and so on. And they put up two poems by the um, misty poet Bei Dao. So it's the, the post is called Two Poems and he, two of his poems are up there. They are named, and I am clicking the link here because I didn't have this committed to memory. They're June and Black Map. So those are up there bilingually in English and Chinese for you to check out. 
So thank you, Asian Cha, for that. Uh, next news item, this is also somewhat related. Uh, this was just something I found uh, through Twitter. It's not news per se, but it's a link to something that is in an archive over at the University of Leiden, or Universität Leiden, I, I should say. It's the very first issue of the Chinese magazine Jintian from 1978, no less, um, which has had all sorts of amazing Chinese writers contribute to it. And according to the tweet, which was from Nick Admason, I believe, in that first issue, one can see that there was actually an intended um, English name. Oh, I'm noticing, <laughs> I should have investigated properly. You can actually browse this thing. It's a digital um, uh, archive that you can that you can click through and see the entirety of Jintian issue one. But of course, it's all in Chinese. So um, my reading ability isn't really going to help me much there. I won't be able to read it properly myself. But yeah, you can see on the front cover uh, the English name is the moment, which is funny because it later just sort of slid into being caught referred to as Jintian in English. But yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Um, probably an interesting resource for those of you who are capable of reading the Chinese and are interested in modern China's literary or post-Mao China's literary history. Pretty amazing thing to be able to access via the internet. Now, last thing, I was having trouble finding news actually this time around, but I got something pretty good here. This is um, a short story that is up for reading um, online. It's The Killer by a Tibetan author, Tsering Norbu. I'm, I'm assuming that's how that's pronounced. I really don't know my Tibetan very well at all. And it's yeah, just a full short story that you can read up on uh, the... I never know if this is cat translation or CA translation. It's the two lines... Center for the Art of Translation. There you go. Um, who are, who own Two Lines Press, I believe. Yeah, this is from their Two Lines Journal. Pretty cool. So that's up there too. So that's all the news. I guess it's time for me to stop talking. You may be amazed to know this was my first take. Usually when I'm recording the news, it takes me something like, or sorry, when I'm recording the intro, it can take me like 10, 12, 20 attempts. And I'm usually pulling my hair out, but it's gone completely smoothly today. First take must be uh, must be something in the water, so I'll I'll stop talking now and I will leave you to the interview I had with um, Nadia Ho, all about Taipei people. Okay, so on the show we have Nadia Ho. Hello, Nadia. How are you doing? Hi. Hello. <laughs> um, how's it going? And what have you been up to? That's a good question. I've been doing what most people on this planet have been doing uh staying home cooking doing my things you know it's my second year in the pandemic i switched country from brooklyn new york to taipei uh taipei just went into a new soft lockdown uh last month so my my family members are a little panicked but i'm cool because i'm second year experienced right. student yeah how's it going on your side um it's okay um this is how every episode begins just about a summary of how everyone's lockdown is going uh, mine yeah. my, my in, in quote marks my lockdown in, in scotland and the uk is getting normality is on the horizon now um lockdown is being gradually eased in scotland and england i've lost and or scotland and the wider uk I, i've completely lost track of who's ahead of who but basically things are still a bit rubbish but they are they do seem to be getting better hopefully i've not jinxed that and 
in my own life, I have a move coming up too. It looks like I'm going to be going down to uh, a town called Nutsford, just outside Manchester, because I've been offered a job. So I don't know if the listeners are have been tracking my life story. I kind of keep the details semi semi vague semi coherent but that's what's going on on planet angus um anyway next question nadia can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself a little bit about myself i think that's the the most important quality of myself tonight is uh being a person born raised in taipei because we're going to talk about taipei people um Mm -hmm. so i think speaking on mr paisinho's work is a little risky for a lot of people because he's got so many fans. Um, I don't, I don't intend to analyze or comment on his work um, because I'm not a literature major. I actually majored in political science and international relations. But I think that plays a role in today's uh, conversation because when I was reading Taipei People, I didn't. I, I couldn't relate too much to these people because none of the main characters in Taipei people were born in Taipei, but I, I was a, a real Taipei native, also much younger than those people. So that's basically um, the first thing about me, born and raised in Taipei. And I published, I published six books. Wait, let me, let me count. Six books now, um, oh. two, um, two nonfiction and four fiction books. I started writing very early because I was somehow uh, born into this literature, artsy community of Taipei in probably a good time. Uh, you know, Taiwan was going under the longest martial law era in history, uh, about 38 years of martial law where people couldn't party, couldn't, uh, they don't have freedom to publish work. Um, but when I was born that, the, the, the restriction was just slowly lifted and my mother's generation uh, in their 20s, 30s, they start doing a lot of creative works. Um, so that's the environment I was growing up in Taipei. So that's how I first um, read Mr. Pai Xianyong's work. Right. So that's me, uh, a, a Taipei girl born into an artsy community in Taipei in the 80s, still a long time ago, in the 80s, and I moved to New York uh, in the early 20s, 2000s. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the lifting of martial law. I, I suppose this might, it might not be such a coincidence given how important that is to Taiwan and literature, but I'm, I'm really quite a newbie both to Taiwan itself and Taiwanese lit. But the, the reason I say it's interesting is because on this string of Taiwan episodes I've done on the podcast, Taiwan season, as I've been calling it, um, I th- think the first two, certainly two of the books I've done are books that are from that era. Um, one which has only just been brought out into English translation, The Membranes by uh, Chi Ta Wei. And mm-hmm. the other one, Notes of the Croc- Notes of A Crocodile by Chiu Miao Jin, which Miao Jin, sorry, which were written. Oh, about, around about that time. Are, so are, are those, um, do, do literary works from that period have as much, as much significance to you as sort of being from, in quotes, that period? I mean, I think we, we can look at this, the phenomena in, in, in several perspectives. I think, first of all, why books get translated in the first place? I think you mentioned, you, you asked this question in the last episode, 
like how how this Taiwanese writers works got attention. Mm. It's usually one. It's usually one translator who loves the book so much and then did work like like Mike uh, who translates them all. Um, right. I so the the writers you just mentioned. Um, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but they all represent. They all play a big part in LGBT literature, mm-hmm. and that is something very. I think it's something very special about Taiwanese literature from the eighties. That how should I <laughs> how should I put it? Uh, what's the question again? You can take it any way you like. I was wondering no. if you, so. You cited you sort of had your you were lucky enough to sort of be raised or have your formative years in that era where Taiwanese culture or society or literature was flourishing after the lifting of, I was about to say lockdown, <laughs> after the lifting of martial oh, yeah. law. Yeah, it was the 38 years of lockdown. <laughs> right. Um, so I was going to ask, oh, now, now I'm struggling to find the words. I was going to ask if works from that period, like the two I've done on the show, have a special significance for you as well as for the literature in general? I think the environment, more freedom allowed people to represent, to express themselves. So um, I've seen a lot more diversity from the time on. And also I think in comparison to Chinese literature in general, um, I think because of the just the publishing industry had grown so fast in Taiwan in the 80s and 90s that the, the publishers were just chasing writers for works. The, 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 the amount of works and diversity and uh, the choices you have in terms of literature, I don't think it happened anytime, anywhere in the short history of Taiwanese literature before. But Bai Chenyong was way before uh, before I was born. Right. So now I, I, now I, re-re- I reread the stories, actually the first time reading in English. It's a little odd. Um, I, have to, I have to reference to the original. Um, it's amazing how, like I, I saw a lot of things I didn't see when I was younger. I just saw these are old people and I, I, I know why they're sad. But then I see as, as someone with Mr. Pai's social status, like he was so articulate and he has so much affection for people who suffer from nostalgia and the, the, the very ambiguous and lost of identity. And I think that's very, it's very, um, it's very special from his generation because he's got, he get to say what he wanted to say. That's because Taipei people were published during martial law. Mm-hmm. So I was very, so I you know this is, I don't know how, he, how this happened. That somehow people in the university here in National Taiwan University have more freedom to express than people outside of the school. You know, it's, I think it's part of our, our culture. Like if you're, we are in a scholar bureaucracy culture so if you're uh, you study hard you have higher social status and you get to do what other people not allowed to do it's just one way to explain it 
Um, but the stories were published in a, a periodical called Modern Literature that's in the 60s. Well, you've, you've led us really nicely into our next section, uh, which first, first <laughs> I was going to ask you, who's, who's this guy, Pai Qianyong, and then who, is, um, who are the Taipei people? But I guess we could mention something. Um, I think you sort of hinted at it, uh, something I did not know about Mr. Pai, um, even after I read the book, which would have been helpful for me to have um, researched a bit more dilig diligently and known this. But he himself is, uh, I guess, an LGBT figure. He was, uh, he's a, a gay man. So that makes him, that means I've got now uh, three and it's going to be four in the, in the next episode LGBT writers that I've covered in Taiwan season when I thought I was just going to have two. I thought it would be less than half, but I've been uh, pleasantly yeah. surprised. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, what's interesting is that I do not know he was gay when I was little. Like Everyone right. in my community, like we're good students. <laughs> I was a, a, a child star writing. I started writing when I was 15. So everyone knows Mr. Bai, and I, we know he's a very renowned figure, but I didn't know he was gay. I didn't care. Like, mm. no one, we, we, we didn't have the context or have the concept of thinking that someone is not straight. So when I was reading Taipei People, even when I was re reading Crystal Boys, I was just like, why are they so sad? But I still <laughs> did not. You know, I still did not think that, oh, Mr. Pai may be gay because I didn't, I didn't care much. But I think that open, openly, you know, self-identify as gay was not a thing. And you just don't do it. But then later when I lived, when I lived in New York and my classmate, um, he's Korean. And he was like, oh, you know what? I love Pai Shen Yong. I can give him a blowjob. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> You don't have to, have you seen him? Like, seriously, like I have, he's, he's a grandpa. And then he was, like, <laughs> he was like, that's how much I love Crystal Boys. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but still, don't, you don't have to. <laughs> but that's, uh, this is how, you know, I, I, I have no idea that people outside Taiwan or, or China uh, are loving him. I th something I, I mentioned before on the show, sort of a, I don't know if you could call it a guilty pleasure or a weird pleasure, but um, when I was uh, living in Shanghai, you know, uh, Lawai in China, Westerner, mm. one of my favorite places in town was the, I say town, places in the city was the Korea mm. town because as, as much as Shanghai was an amazing place to see the Haipai, the sort of hybrid or at least interacting Eastern and Western or Chinese and Western cultures through time, you, if you knew where to go, you could see other interactions where it was Chinese culture and neighboring cultures. And perhaps this was just me exoticizing or um, getting excited about things or getting fascinated in things that are commonplace. But I think even like, especially in this podcast, this is a podcast all about Chinese lit being translated into English and the other, mm -hmm. often the other translations that come up are stuff Chinese to French, Chinese to German. But it's so it, I think for me as a Westerner, I have to occasionally remind myself that um, just because a Chinese author is big or not big in English, they might be huge or they might be non-existent in like Japanese, Korean and stuff. Oh. It's, it's just interesting to me to know that 
yeah, he's he's a guy who's famous in Korea, but I I, I believe my Korean friend read it in English. Um, oh, but right, but right. his books, but his books had been translated into other Asian languages as well. Right. But yes. usually the first the first foreign uh, edition is usually English. Usually. But not not necessary. Like my my book, the first, the only foreign language version of my book is Korean. Right. So it really depends on one person, one book agent, one you know, one passionate translator. Yeah. Um, the book is a very very slow trade. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. <laughs> For sure. But um, that that's why I think that's why it's very it's, it's fascinating. Because it's o- almost like a miracle mm-hmm. when you have a good translated uh, book yeah. ready. Like Stan Mao's books took forty-four years. Yeah, but that is an amazing addition, the the Bloomsbury yeah. one, for sure. So I actually have a background story for that, but then that's not that's not what we're talking about today. But I think maybe I don't know if you covered this if, uh, in the previous episodes. I think that a lot of people ask uh, this question to me that if this is Taiwanese literature, why is it in Chinese language? Why is it in Chinese? Is it Chinese language? Is it, it is Chinese literature? And it's very, well, it could, it could be a sh- easy question. It is part of the Chinese literature. Um, but I don't know if you know why the, it's the language here. I guess I guess I know the history of Taiwan. Um, a thing I don't know so much about is the, or have only really least recently um, become properly aware of, is the the printing standards that books in Taiwan, if I understand correctly, uh, all go traditional style, top, yeah, top to bottom, right to left. Whereas in the mainland, it's the in quote marks the European style, um, left to right, um, and horizontal, not vertical. But if someone was to ask me like is there like give me an argument for or against demarcating Taiwanese lit from Chinese I just don't have an answer because I don't have <laughs> studied um, it's another is what when you said like people asking you that question I I'm this is a very very limited analogy but as a Scottish person I have had people from who don't know so much about the UK ask me like do you do you speak Scottish and then I have to um explains them well, oh, there's yeah. no such language as scottish but there is scots english and then there's gaelic and then the person will react one of two ways they will become very very interested and start grilling me or i will just slowly watch them switching off and losing interest because there's no straightforward answer to the question i don't know right. if you've had similar experiences yeah there's no pure language uh, but my answer is so as a writer parents writer living in new york they was like, oh, why do you write in Chinese then if you're not Chinese? I'm like, yo, American link, American literature is all <laughs> in English. You're not English, right? Um, <laughs> but there's a reason that this language is the dominant language here. Um, it's after just since 1949 when the Republic of China, Republic of China, that's where Chiang Kai-shek's government retreated to Taiwan they changed the official language to Mandarin Chinese. Uh, so in my family, my family is a total native. My mother, my grandmother, and I have different native language. So generations in my family have different first language growing up. So my grandmother was educated. She was educated in Japanese. Um, 
My mother's first language is Taiwanese. It's a dialect. Taiwanese Hokkien, a, a thousand dialect that's closer to Cantonese. And my first language is Mandarin. It's a mandatory language. And when I went to elementary school, they were not allowed to speak dialect. And you get, you know, they, t- they take your points out if you're caught speaking a dialect. Ouch. Any dialect. It, w- it worked pretty well. And now, <laughs> now we are trying to get it back. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Now I can only speak English. I speak English better than my Taiwanese. So right. It, You've done a great job. You're doing a much better job than me bringing us to the next question, which was going to be about <laughs> who are the Taipei people. Um, I'll divert slightly. I'll keep my rubbish Scotland analogy going. So like, yeah, Gaelic was banned here um, technically by the London government hundreds of years ago. It's gone. And now, of course, the British broadcasting company, the BBC, has a BBC Gaelic channel, which um, is doing frantic life support, I guess, to the to the basically dead language. Like I'm from a part of the country where it just wouldn't be a thing to speak it. And as to whether you speak, as to whether someone speaks Scots, the dialect, that's, I would say, in my experience, that's a question of class. That depends on how far removed you are from from the ground level, so to speak. I don't know if it's similar in Taiwan. Um, Do you want to, is that something you can answer or shall we just charge ahead? Actually, it's it's related to what we're about to say in the stories. Oh, of course. Yeah. So based on many texts and our, our history that I read about how it was like when the, the Chinese government, uh, the Republican Chinese government moving to Taiwan. So I, I'm actually writing a script based on the history right now, a movie script that, um, the story that I believe many people will be interested because it's a, it has something to do with moving all the gold from mainland China to Taiwan. Um, so it was 1948 to 49 that the, the government of Chiang Kai-shek was going to move to Taiwan. So, but from our side in the island, what Taiwanese people see, what Taiwanese people saw when they moved over, they saw an army of ex- exhausted soldiers, tired people, poor, sick, and, and, and lost. Um, so they, the strange mix of the mainlanders who are new to Taiwan, they didn't have a home, they have to find a home. They've been, a lot of them, if they're not high-ranking officers, they, they live in small villages, military villages. Um, for the locals, we, um, the, the natives didn't speak the right language. So, you know, I've experienced this in America that if you don't speak English well, they think you're stupid. And this is, so for a very long period of time, Taiwanese dialect, um, their Hokkien and their Hakka um, and other smaller dialects, if you don't speak Mandarin perfectly, they they think you're a working class or, you know, it's a lower class people. We have that image on TV or in movies, you know, all the criminals speak Dalek. So, but in, in Taipei people, you will see all these very well-dressed, classy people. Um, they're all from the mainland. They probably speak Mandarin with the slight Shanghainese accent. Um, so that's the language of the higher class. 
but do not necessarily it doesn't necessarily means that they have more money a lot of them that actually came here broke right, so i yeah. think yeah like just you know getting back to what you just said it really represents just um, social class not the actual education level of a person yeah the social and cult- cultural capital but not the capital in a bank account right Right. Um, I was just going to bring it back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, nostalgia and how uh, Pai Xianyong um, was such a, is such a great writer at capturing nostalgia and how he feels for right. people who are suffering from it. I seem to recall I've seen on Facebook in a, a, a group, nostalgic memes for hauntological teens or something. It's a, it's a Mark Fisher uh, appreciation group who's a, a guy I've mentioned in the show, like the one intellectual writer I've read in the last year, who's in many ways a thinker who, a thinker highly concerned with nostalgia in, in, in lots of different mm-hmm. forms. So it, it's, been a, it's been a running theme on the show. In fact, you could argue my whole show is a nostalgia project because I, I used to live in China. I went back, I started the show. So we're in great, great territory here covering Taipei people on, on this podcast in particular. Um, right. Um, so yes, we should, we could probably address before we talk about the specific stories about the specific characters, um, how one thing that all these Taipei people have in common, as well as mostly being from a higher social standing back on the mainland is the fact that they're all, a lot of them, probably all of them are stricken by some kind of nostalgia or they're, they're living in the past or they're haunted by the past. I think we've already given the historical context for that, but is there anything else you'd like right. to say about that before we talk about the first story? I, yeah, I just want to say nostalgia is a shared feeling, a shared emotion or, that we all have. We tend to uh, rewrite the story in our childhood. Like everything happened in childhood is, is, is better. or mm-hmm. It usually just means that you know, we're not doing too well at the moment. <laughs> if you're being you're too so nostalgic mm-hmm. yeah um so i think the reason that this this stories have such heavy nostalgia means usually means that um they didn't achieve what they wanted to achieve yeah which would make sense because some of them just lost the war yeah they lost the war and they just been through a war and a lot of trauma and when they moved to Taiwan, actually, the government just kept telling them, we're going back soon. Even, right. even when I went to high school, when, until when I went to high school, we had this <laughs> patriotism <sighs> education saying that we're going we're gonna to fight back one day. And we were like, yeah, okay. Like, I, don't, I don't even know where it is. I don't even know where it is, right? But we're just like, okay, if that's what you want to hear. Yeah. If you think of other countries that, that did that, I guess the one that we have in the world today, that's North Korea, I guess. There's a there's a <laughs> some kind of an overarching plan there to undo the past. And not not that I'm trying to make a crass comparison here. Oh no, no. Actually we have a lot in common uh with the South Koreans. When I went went right. to school in New York, the South Koreans were like, we love just <laughs> referencing our our textbooks together. We we're like, yo, because and then you know they have a lot of uh where it's come taking out from uh, Chinese characters, right? They don't use the Chinese characters a lot, but they sound the sounds are very similar. Like how we call the communists, how we say uh, you know patriotism, or how we say how, all these slogans—they're all so similar. Right. So this is our little you no know, guilty fun, uh, a shared 
by this Americanized anti-communist little right you know, East East Asian economic miracles. <laughs> you know. Well, we gotta find um, fun in life wherever you can take it. Yeah, we gotta do it. And then um, we're a bunch of international relations majors. Mm, ah, right. so this is our our international relations i not to keep um, it all about me in my home country but i that reminded me of a time when i was a teacher at an international school i was substitute teaching a, a primary sorry a first grade class and it was parents night so the kid it was a mainland chinese state school but it was the international division so we had mm-hmm. uh, kids and parents from all over but mostly uh like han chinese kids from somewhere or other uh, plenty of them were had like were Taiwanese Taiwanese parents, but of course, on my list of the the class list, they're listed as being from like Chinese Taipei or something. Oh yeah. Um, so the the parents come in, and it's both of them, and mama and the dad, and I knew I, yeah, I think I knew that they were Taiwanese. So we're just having a normal conversation about the kid, and they said, "You have an interesting accent. Are are you English?" And I said, "No, uh, I'm I'm from Britain." Um, I'm from Scotland, you know, I sound fairly British though, and was, or I sound, my accent is maybe more generally British and was about to talk about that. And they were like, yeah, we, we get it. We're Taiwanese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. But yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yes. I was going to say one more thing about um, nostalgia. The reason I brought it up, the point, the, the thing I started with, and then I never, I never got to the point was that I read in that Facebook group, um, people were bringing up screenshots of like old, I think Victorian textbooks um, or referencing the fact that not that far back in the past in, I think Anglo or European culture, whatever, nostalgia was defined as a mental illness or a problem, not just a sort of normal mental condition. And perhaps that's a bit extreme, but I, what you said about feeling nostalgic when you're in a bad place, I mean, and during the middle of lockdown or first lockdown here in the UK, I was really interested in just sort of trying to recall places I'd been in years past because it, it beat staring at the same wall every day. And although mm-hmm. it felt good in the short term, it's a bit like a drug. It's not great in the long term. And it's a sign of other problems. The other thing I was going to say, when you mentioned childhood, this is really random, but this will give listeners somewhere fun to go. There's a trend online... Uh, you can find Facebook groups about it, or you can search YouTube for it. You might have seen it. It's liminal spaces. Have you heard of this thing, liminal spaces? No. Right. Um, if you like sort of eerie, creepy stuff, this is perfect. I might have talked a bit about this on an episode on Tantra, because she's, she's definitely sort of in this wheelhouse. So it's a trend of a certain kind of picture of an empty, abandoned space, which gives you Uh a strange, uncanny, but not entirely unpleasant feeling. And I wanted to know like how people had analyzed it because I could see there was common themes. Water is a common theme. Feeling like you've been to the place in a dream is a common theme. Dreams are important in Taipei people, actually, in some of the stories, one of them anyway. Um, and and I, I found one or two quite young people um, do it who had like compiled images, thought about it and made little video essays on YouTube. And the thing someone pointed out, which was so obvious once someone told me 
I was embarrassed I hadn't noticed it. Loads of the things were things you, if you were born in like the anywhere from the late eighties through to maybe the mid nineties. And I'm, I'm from 93. It's like mm-hmm. kids play areas or pools or just aesthetics that would be from that period in your life when your first memories are beginning to the first memories that you'll keep are being formed and places that have been replaced by more modern mm-hmm. aesthetics. So places that only exist in memory or an ab- ab- abandoned, um, which you can't get back to, which would be, you know, somewhat. Right. A decent metaphor for mainland China in this story. Yeah, visual memories is very interesting. But also, you could it could be um, modified unconsciously. I, mm. I, now I remember I was writing so in one of my books. I actually I wrote about nostalgia in, in Greek. It literally means the pain from an old wound. Right. Even 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 though if it's healed, but you still you think you feel the pain, and I kind of. You can and I think type of people kind of need this pain to know that they had the wound before. Mm. Like it was the the, the, the the an evidence that they existed, an evidence that they had they once had a home, they had a different life. Yeah, because it, I I I know you have been in Taipei. It's just the whole the climate the. The smell, the temperature, everything is different from China. Totally, it's, yeah. If yeah, if you go to like the, the first line, it says in um, the story that we're going to say, the Nasib Taipanjing is uh, that's a place in Westgate Square. That's how they translate it. But if you go, if you are in Taiwan, you're visiting Taiwan. The, this place is um, they translate it phonetically. It's Shimending. So Shimending was was part of Japanese. Uh, urban planning it's it's identical to shinjuku in oh, tokyo interesting so if you see the old photos of these two places they look the same so if the the, the streets are designed more similar to the japanese cities than chinese cities mm-hmm. so yeah so when they move here it's this is like this is a fo- like a foreign country and you see palm trees because we're semi-tropical um and you know it's it's like a foreign country for the managers which who, who first came here. I also I, I I've heard the story multiple times. People say their grandpa when they first arrived Taipei, they ate bananas for the first time. Oh right, <laughs> bananas, pineapple, mangoes. Right, this is, you know Taiwan. Yeah, an island in in the Pacific, I guess. Um, yeah, my experience visiting Taipei was, um, it was, it was interesting because by that time I had already been to Hong Kong. So I'd seen a sort of a place which is Chinese and, and yet different. Um, but that felt, that was a different experience because I speak by that time on those visits, my Mandarin was pretty, pretty decent. Um, so like walking around hearing conversations, I could tune in and out of them. Whereas in Hong Kong, I could, but only if it was in English, zero Cantonese. Um, and just, yeah, I would say my experience of Taipei was, it felt closer to the how I felt on the mainland, but I couldn't tell if that was just because being in tune with the language more was giving me that ambient feeling, or if there was something closer than that. But the, yeah, the, it's funny you mentioned uh, Shinjuku and 
the Japanese elements because I noticed right away, wow, I thought Shanghai had lots of Japanese style um, convenience stores, but um, nothing close to Taipei. And the amount of Japanese restaurants was just not something uh-huh. I would have seen coming either. I don't think we can say anything very deep about that. But yeah, the sort of strangeness, but strange, but not entirely unpleasant. In fact, mostly pleasant feeling of being there. I, I, I could vibe with that. But I think I mentioned in our conversation before the show, that's the only place in, in Taiwan I've been. So I have nothing much to compare it against apart from Hong Kong, which is not a very useful comparison. Um, yeah, but that, you know, in the stories, it's a totally different era. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Do you want to, should we, should we move on to we this, this story? We should. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I realized when you said Taipan, I goofed my, my question sheet says Taipachin. So excuse- I know you all, you always auto trend, uh, auto correct back to Taipei. It's just, you know, that's what Google does. R- right. Yeah. That might be it. Um, I'm just, the listeners will hear my my computer chair's wheels rolling here as I go and get a pen and score out so that my brain doesn't keep saying Taipei instead of Taipan. Taipan. Yeah. All right. That should that should stop me making a fool of myself. So yeah, I thought what we could do, we're going to sort of zoom in on three of the stories from the book and we'll start by having a go, at, I'll start by having a go at summarizing it I'll try and cover all the bases. If my memory misses anything really egregious, um, Nadia, maybe That's you fine. could maybe you could fill in the blanks. People blank. should just go read the story themselves. Exactly. Yeah, these things are quite short. Um, <laughs> you can get the book there. You, if you have academic access, you can certainly read this because that's that's where I got it. Um, but perhaps these are available one by one online. I, I'm not sure, but they yes. are. They are right. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so this our first story, The Last Night of Taipan Chin. Uh, so I've got who, what, where, why, when. That should help me remember. So who, Taipan Chin is a, ooh, I'm, I'm, I'm not finding the right noun here, but she's a, a, a lady, I guess, from the old dance, dance halls of Shanghai who has sort of continued her career in, uh, in Taiwan. What, I guess it's her last night on the job before she retires. She's got herself... Uh, a wealthy husband, I believe. And I think from what I gleaned from the story, that's sort of the end trajectory of a career like this. This is what you're sort of trying to climb the ladder to get. We're um, we're in a dance hall in Taiwan. I don't know a great deal more about it than that, like if it's a real famous uh, one. When? It's a Nutepeki. It's Night of Paris, but then the translator just did a French of it. Right, yeah. Yes, I was. Yes, I was curious. Whenever I see something that's not English or Chinese in a piece of translated Chinese fiction, I'm always wondering, hmm, um, how did this look in the original? Um, but I usually don't go and check. Usually, it's a, a mystery I don't investigate. When I, I don't know what year we're in. Um, I just know it's it's the nighttime. And why? I guess the the drama of the story. I guess there isn't really a plot to this one we just sort of follow her she has interactions with the other girls and some of the the male clientele and she ends up dancing with one of the like a one of the like the dorkiest boy the dorkiest young man in the dance hall and she has a flashback to um a similar sort of more innocent or younger um male clientele they him, this memory and the guy and the young guy in the present stand out 
because it seems like a lot of the other men are kind of uh, boorish or, or pigs, especially the older ones. But she's found something to hold on to in these younger, more innocent guys. I don't know. Is there anything really key I've missed there? <laughs> um, yeah, you, even that's basically the storyline. But uh, I think the point here is that Taipan, her Jin, Jin Taipan, Taipan Jin, the, the title of this job, it's so, it's, if you know Chinese, you know, it sounds so glamorous. Like Jin means goal, right? Right. So it's, that's, I'm sorry if I'm interrupting you, but this is a, me being a, a mainland Laowai and not a Taiwa, Taiwan Laowai. When I see Qin, I'm not so used to the way Giles. So if, if, it, if I'd seen Jin, J-I-N, I might have known this was gold, but yeah. I agree with you. Taiwan translation, Taiwan spelling is some, somehow confusing. Um, yeah. That's, it's because the system we created here, we want to sound more American. Right. Yeah. Um, sorry, but, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's totally fine. So Taipan is, literal translation is uh, like the leader of a band, a band of ladies. Right. So it's a very, she's a leader, which usually means that she has a bigger clientele. She's more popular, but also means she's older. So I think it's very nice of Mr. Pai here. He was so, he's sensitive to notice that. In every woman's job, even in every woman's life, that there's expiration date. So they're always like rushing. They're always anxious about um, finding a husband. Even for for Qing, Qing Taipan, that she's basically the source of the main source of income. This nightclub uh, mm-hmm. ballroom. She's leading. She's she's getting all the cash for the place. But then you know she's she turned forty. She needs to retire. And this is her last night on the job. She was, the flashback is just, com- she's thinking about how many men, wealthier, richer, better than this one. <laughs> but this one's okay. She's done, she's done an investigation that he's got a small factory, a few, a few old houses. This man is fine. He's a nice man, he's a decent person. But then she's thought about the men she could have got in Shanghai, but she was too proud. She thought mm. she would get better, man. But that's not just about her. It's about the time in Shanghai. Was, it was probably a much better time for the economy. And Paramount, the, the nightclub, I don't know if you have visited the, the it's now a, a landmark building in Shanghai. I'm sure I would know it if I saw it. Um... But yeah, my, it's now my, a movie movie theater in uh in on the bun. I so I might have been to that. I might have seen the Avengers um End Game in that one. Or yeah, certainly yeah, yeah, yeah. Dark <laughs> cinema. I saw that in. I mean, I mean, full of myself there. It's very likely to uh yeah it's <laughs> it's, it's it's now a movie theater. Uh, but uh but you know according to Taipan Ching that even. The John at the Paramount must have taken up more room than the dance floor in this place in Taipei. So Paramount was huge. Mm-hmm. Was 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 there like the the peak of her career of anyone's career? So I I think I I, I want to explain the job like the woman's job. She's 
similar. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say just like a geisha, but similar to geisha, that her job is to be someone's girlfriend. But it's more like it. It it doesn't have to involve sex. Right. Like it's a more hostess it's, sort of thing. It's a hostess. Yeah, it's a hostess. And how it works is that you enter the ballroom, and the the man has to show off his 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 wealth. Like, and then they 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 take turns. They switch tables. If you want your your beloved lady to stay longer, you have to order more drinks. You have to pay. You have just have to impress her. So it's a competition, showing off their their wealth.、Um, so I guess in Shanghai before the war, it was a much better time. Um, I I actually I heard story about Paramount in Shanghai. Like they have a a light tower, where you can see the light from a mile away. So when someone is leaving, the waiter will turn will will show the car plate number on the light tower, and the driver will see it. Oh, and then go pick it up. Very sort of retro futuristic. That's really cool. Yeah, it's just. That's how it is. They have、mm. it's,、um, but I this the, but this place where Taipan Jean spent her last night in Taipei, Nuit de Paris, Night of Paris. I actually I have been there. All it right. Long time after it closed, they some they still use it as、um, like occasionally still use it as an event place if anyone wants to rent it. It's on. It's above. A, a movie theater in Ximending in Westgate Square. I actually I grew up in this neighborhood, so I know、mm-hmm. this area very well. It's it's just full of entertainment. It's that's it's teenagers' favorite playground.、Um, <laughs> but I went, yeah. But that the 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 ballroom was have been closed for a long time. The reason I visited is the owner of the movie theater. He was upgrading. Their sound system, and he, he told me,、uh, he told me, I have this place above me. I don't know what to do with it. So、uh, it's on the fifth floor, as I remember.、Um, so it's a size. So you know, it's up、uh, above a movie theater. So it's a size. It's probably about a size, the size of a movie theater. Right. And so I went up there. This, there's a sofa. I have a. There's a small、uh, dance floor and a sofa.、Um, It kind of like had the smell of a few decades of, you know, customers, cigarettes, and <laughs> right. It just, and then I went. We went to the attic, and there's a like a, a night watch room where I saw, for some reason, someone's it was someone's clothes that was still there, hanging there, like waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the the man to come back. I think it's one of the Um, the guards would would still live there, right?、Um, but that's that's how that's how a ballroom ended up. I think it's still I think it's it's being renovated now. But I went there about ten years ago. Cool. Yeah, it's um it's one of those books where you could maybe do a a walking tour through the city and hit hit the landmarks. I guess for a lot of these places, it was still it was still a, a culture, a kind of a. I wouldn't say it's popular culture, but I think there, this hidden small ballrooms have been open until recently, and only older people go there.、Mm, right. 
also the, the performers are also older. Um, they have just, uh, it's, it's something they call the red envelope performances. Interesting. Uh, um, the customers go with red envelopes and when the singer comes around you and just give her money. The more, <laughs> the more, the more they like you, the more money they're going to give you and you don't know how much it's, it is uh, until after. All, all the mentions of Shanghai, I was racking my brain trying to think of equivalent places I've been. Just just a couple spring to mind. Um, I went to, I don't know if this place is particularly ancient, but it was a relatively famous um, jazz bar in Shanghai. I think it was called the Cotton Club. I think that's named after a more famous jazz club somewhere else, mm. but it really wasn't, wasn't a very mainstream attraction. It felt like I was somewhere that needed a bit more love, even in Shanghai, um, strangely. But another place, when you mentioned geishas, I remembered a rather strange experience I had. Um, I had gone to see a, a ballet in the, I think, the, yeah, the ballets, or the classical music or ballets or whatever is center in Shanghai, which is in Hong Kong, again, near the sort of Koreatown, uh, Hongqiao area which isn't just a Korea town. It's actually got a lot of um, Asian expats. So it, other East Asian people who've come to Shanghai. And so I, the, the woman I was dating at the time, we went on a wander out from this, the, the venue to find uh, just a bar to go to before we went home. Yeah. And we wandered into what appeared to be like a Japanese um, sort of bar area where I guess a lot of the customers would have been Japanese too. And we found one that looked sort of, a normal-ish place to go it looked quite nice i think it was mostly a whiskey bar and we sat down there was a man and a woman working the bar maybe one looked like the owner one looked like the bar staff but i think during our time there both offered to like sit with us for a fee and chat in i guess presumably mandarin but it's like uh no no we, we weren't here for that but it was like a very oh. very i guess very innocent version of um you know something in the same uh wheelhouse as taipan chin just paying a little bit of money for an, a nice conversation with a interesting person presumably interesting maybe they would have been really boring um, i think that's yeah i mean it's the category of companion companion right it's like a con like pay companion uh, is a much bigger industry in japan so i think what you went to is a, is something they call bar like bar, bar girl girls bar it's called girl, girls bar it's much cheaper than uh, Taipan jeans Taipan jeans club right like Taipan that's the high end place to go and in Japan the modern day equivalents would be Ginza the area Ginza they have a hostess club and you can easily spend millions yen a yes. night that's where the the millionaires compete with each other during a good time in the economy now it's probably not the time mm. right. um, but i wanted to actually i wanted to talk about um i i didn't see the author this way when i was reading it when i was much younger but this time i actually saw like i never thought he'd be a feminist but he does have uh, empathy on the female situation that um, because he's so articulate on how, how Taipan Chain does her job. Um, he 
I mean, he knows well. Like I, I wouldn't have know how how hostesses work. But Mr. Bai happened to be. I mean, at least he knows people who can afford the services, so he knows very well about the industry. That a Taipan has to be the customer relation retention manager, and she had to recruit other the ladies from other places, and she's、right. also the brand ambassador of this business. So, such an important figure in the business. But then, you know, at this time, at some time, she has to retire. But the The manager, who is an older, he is older man who get to stay there forever. So I think I actually didn't see this much when I was younger, but now I see it. Sure. Yeah, I I saw things on my reread of this、uh, story. So, I my first read was、uh, quite a while ago now, and that was, well, it was.、Um, I did a fair bit of prep. Like I read the intro material, read a bit about the significance of the book. Then read the thing, then went away, had a bit of time to digest it. But I think perhaps crucially learned that、uh, Mr. Mr. Pai, Mr. Pai is a、uh, is a gay man because I'd had this initial little suspicion in my mind. Like, is he doing what when he's describing the both the beauty and the aging of of Taipan? And there's quite a quite a word count spent on how、um, on her 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 appearance, her dress,、um, how she's dressed.、Um, I think it's in like a, a chipao, and how other、right. the other、um, hostesses or other yeah other hostesses are are dressed. I was like, interesting. Why are we spending so much word count here? Is this just a guy kind of creating his ideal version of a of a beautiful woman in in words? Because you know, perhaps perhaps why wouldn't you? When you're the creator, you can create whatever you like. Um, but learning he's a gay man, that that little box is perhaps negated. Or if he <laughs> if he is if, if he is choosing to make them beautiful in his own particular way, it's not. You know, there might be other more literary、um, particular reasons for it. And yet, on the reread, I, I felt he really did do a great job at handling both her、um, the nuances of her appearance, but also, yeah, you're right, her her role in the company and how she's got a heart of gold in some. Some some of the things she does, and you see that in the past where she she helped a young woman, and then in the present where she's chosen to give attention to the shy nerdy guy, or、right. maybe not nerdy but dorky guy. But you see, she's got a bit of an iron fist as well. When she's a, a rival is giving her cheek, she she uses violence. Maybe I shouldn't be laughing. I found that bit、um, <laughs> at least blackly funny, and she also rants at a, a, the the girl she helped. Kind of squandered the opportunity or misused it.、Um, she got involved with a, a, a skeevy guy and, and got impregnated. And you're,、right. I left on my second reading, not really knowing if she's a, a good or bad person, but liking her, which is how I feel about some of my friends and some of my favorite people. To be honest,、um, it's very true to life. You don't need to make a definitive judgment on whether someone's a saint or a sinner.、Um, but he's he 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 makes me feel like for Taipan Jin, I could go either way. Right, yeah, he has a、uh, he has a, a lot of empathy, compassionate to towards all these people. Like、uh, they, the people have desires, but then they're also naive to the environment, which they cannot change much in the political situation. But also, I think he's very he knows very well about、um, styles and clothes and what what kind of people wears what. Um, I think part of the reason is that、uh, he's from a wealthy family. 
his mother and his you know the sisters and the family they all have really nice clothes and decorations jewelries like he's seen all those things so he knows what's good and also the 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 dress that he depict here um these are the clothes that only women in the show business will wear right. so like if you see someone wearing a, a black chiffon chipao how you know he's not a normal it's not quote-unquote normal no yeah he she, she does something for a living but chipao is you know in the original version like it's a manchurian traditional clothes mm. that the, it's always like before the 20 1920s it's always worn with pants on and right. at beginning in shanghai in the 1920s and 30s that uh because of the the western influence the western cultural influences that people start reading vogue magazine i guess <laughs> that they know oh you can you know showing your curves is is uh, is a way to be attractive and that's that's how that's how cheap how it has transformed right yeah today globalization so, globalization or you know evil evil western yes culture you, listeners can choose the one they they prefer yeah um the last thing i was going to ask or say about taipan uh jin or taipan jin i should say is I don't entirely remember the whatever deep thoughts I was having when I was writing this question, but I, I was I noticed in the book there are quite a lot of um, sort of beauties or fading beauties or just important women, often Cardinal Ajipao or what have you, in similar or similarish situations to Taipan. But for me, she was the one who's the most memorable. Upon, I was going to say closing the book. I read the thing on a mm -hmm. tablet, so I can't say closing the book. But upon shutting down the tablet, um, because she has a lot of contradictions, but she thinks about them. She's aware of them, whereas other characters more seem more naive or caught in their dreams. They're not don't have much, as much self reflection. And I actually think I preferred this character, maybe because I'm a lazy reader and I like having the contradictions <laughs> pointed out to me. <laughs> But, uh, what, but you're not you you're not alone. Uh, it's mm. Taipan Chen is the most adapted character. The story is the most adapted into TV or films. There, there right. are a couple of versions of it. Um, I think one thing is what you said that she's very relatable, that she's aware of all the all the all the choices and all the transformation. But also, I think she she plays a role as a storyteller in the story. Uh, I suppose in other stories, maybe it's the woman, it's just one of the characters, but in this story, it's the structure is, is so, um, so tight, but also it tells the landscape of, of the, the, the era they're in. I think this is like a one and all, uh, all in one. This is an all in one character. Totally. Yeah. Now that I think of it, she, she would, I can think of a few reasons why the story would make a good, visual or TV movie adaptation because there's a lot of visual uh, what's the word oh boy um, you could do a lot of exciting <laughs> visual things just with the set and the costumes there is a word I'm looking for I'm not I'm not grasping it but you can make it sort of carnivalesque and visually right. light and the shadow color all sorts of things you could do um, but aside from that it's sort of a more of a maybe not a classical story in the sense there's not a clear plot but it's a short story so not too much need for that but the character a proactive character who 
uh, is strongly drawn, doesn't just passively float. And there isn't a, there is a cast, but it's not a sort of an ensemble collective distanced. We're up close over her shoulder sort of. And thinking about some of the other stories uh, in the collection, they are sort of, they're more sort of like in my, I don't know, in my mind anyway, sort of breezy, dreamy, distanced, more passive, less almost less conscious characters sounds really mean, but less focused characters, more hazy stories. Whereas this one, like you're saying, has a sort of a laser focus to it that just right. make it sort of naturally makes it more readable, if not if not necessarily better, more beautiful. Yeah, easy, an easy one to follow. Um, right. Shall we go on to the next one? Let's do it. All right. Okay. The next one is Winter Nights. And this one is, I guess, a two character. We got we got two two guys this time. Uh, I'll try and summarize it again. If there's anything really glaring I've missed, just feel free to feel free to correct me. No problem. Um, and this is the one where I'm going to bring up my own hot take. Uh, I'm going to name drop Freud at some point, so listeners can look forward to that. Um, so we have we have two guys. Uh, I do not yeah Chu Chu Kuo Wu Chu Kuo and Jin Jin Lei. Is that is that yeah, actually- that's called that's we could call them by last name. Yu and Professor Yu and what's the other? Wu. Wu. Yeah, that's okay. Professor Yu, two- Professor Wu. Right. Yeah. Okay, that that's works. And yeah. I'm now going to embarrass myself because I don't recall which is which. But I should yeah, let's check that now actually. So which which guy has stayed in Taiwan? It's very confusing for me too. Um, I guess Professor Yu is the one still in Taipei? Professor Yu is the one, yeah. Okay. He has a pair of wooden clocks on his feet. He must have stayed in Taiwan. Uh, (laughs) I'm glad there's someone who can spot these clues. I I wouldn't have got that. (laughs) I was surprised because when I I read the first paragraph, he was holding an oil paper umbrella. I was like, wait, really? But and I realized maybe that they did in the sixties. Right, right. Just umbrellas, umbrellas in general. Um, I don't know if this is something that's ever popped into your head. And I guess you've never been in 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 Britain. You're you're the version of the West that you've lived in is is the States. But um, the way people deal with rain is quite different in Scotland. People do use umbrellas, but you see way less of them. Um, uh, you you get um much more people wearing just their raincoat with their hood up rather than um, an umbrella. Right. And the, la- the lazy take is what? It's a more individualist culture. So you just need one hood for yourself and no one shares it with you. Whereas over in China, you can share an umbrella, but I, I don't know. It might just be that a probably more realistic explanation. You can have rain in hot weather <laughs> over in most of China. Whereas here, if it's raining, it's also freezing. So it makes sense to be. I was gonna, yeah, I was going to start this rain conversation with you. Because you know me as grow- someone growing up in Taipei, we are very experienced with all kinds of rain. So Taipei, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you have heard of this famous song, popular song in China. It's like winter time, you go to Taipei and watch rain. I I never learned Chinese pop music. Yeah, so it's like a famous song that people see, every time they, they know I'm a Taipei and from Taiwan, they'd be like, oh, winter time, we go to Taipei see the rain. <laughs> the rain. So we have rain every season, right. all kinds of rain. Um, so I was, I also, I had a, a British teacher and he told me that it, you, you never, 
you can be raining every day in London and you don't need an umbrella. That's mm-hmm. just the way. That's just the way that British people do it.、Um, but I guess it varies by region. Um, I don't know if umbrella use does, but um, yeah, a, f- a funny thing about well, I guess I think Britain and Ireland have in common with with Taiwan then is pros and cons of being an island,、uh, lots of rain. Right. Um, yeah, the weather here basically, I think what I always thought growing up was further north you go, colder it gets, it rainier it gets. But actually, it's not quite so simple. Um. It does get colder if you go further north, obviously, but the rain and bad weather comes in off the Atlantic. So the west coast and Ireland is much rainier、Aww. than the east. So I'm from、uh, Dundee. That's where I am now on the east coast. So、mm-hmm. we are the in we are the sunniest city in Scotland. But of course, that that isn't that doesn't mean there's much sun. <laughs> Just more than everywhere else. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're relatively、okay. dry. Like I used to live. Manchester, the west, much further south,、okay. but a, quite a lot wetter because we were closer、okay. to the Atlantic. But yeah, umbrella culture probably.、Uh, I I I guess people in, in London, people are there's the famous image of like the bureaucrat with his black umbrella, but that's probably more like a modernism image. I think it's all raincoats these days. Now we're all atomized individuals.、Right. Uh, anyway, we've really we've really stripped <laughs> the topic. Um, <laughs> but I wanted I wanted to mention umbrellas because the Taiwan、uh, that this was before Taiwan's economic growth. Ta- the a large part of Taiwan's economic growth is is the the export of、um, plastic umbrella.、Oh, That's、right. what I wanted to say.、Okay. It was before that, so I think he may or may not have mentioned this on purpose. Got it. Got it. Good to know. Right. So in the, in the story, back back to the story, we have Professor Yu who's being visited by Professor Wu, and they're both literary professors. They have,、uh, I guess, they went to university together in the early twenty first century, and they've got a lot of memories. Sorry. They went to university in in mainland China in Beijing. In Beijing, right? It's a、uh, yeah. Beida, right?、Uh, Peking yeah, University. Yeah, I believe. They, yeah, they they went to Peking University. Yeah. Right. Which has definitely come up on the show、uh, before, but、oh. yeah. So they're both、uh, Chinese lit, Beida, Be- Peking University, Beijing University graduates.、Uh, but the difference, the big difference, is、uh, Professor Yu.、Um, well, they both, I believe, they both left China for Taiwan at the end of the Civil War. Professor Yu stayed there. Professor Wu went off to teach Chinese in the States, and now they're being reunited. And most of the story, they're just reminiscing. I guess reminiscing their past and comparing their well, reminiscing their their youth, their more distant past, and then comparing their more recent pasts and presents as、um, as academics and like their thwarted hopes and so on. And then there's a funny little always other grass is always greener bit on the end where, I, as from what I remember anyway, Professor Yu's thinking about upping sticks for the states, and Professor Wu's thinking about settling back down in Taipei. I think that's the the main thrust of it. Is there anything you feel I've missed? <laughs> that was quick.、Uh, I mean, yeah, basically, you know, this is actually a longer story, and、uh, as you know, two old people meet up, and they just tend to talk about their old days forever. This is one of those stories, but I think that a lot of details、uh, are given here about how. Scholars, how college professors、uh, 
were treated. <laughs> I don't know if I should call it that way. Were treated in in Taipei. So I believe Professor Yu was teaching in Taiwan University, National Taiwan University. That's where I went to school. Supposedly、right. the best university in town. This was, it was called the Imperial Imperial University of Taipei because the Japanese founded the store the school. Right. So we had、um, a lot of Japanese houses in on campus, and he was given a very old, shaky、uh, Japanese house as his dormitory. His professor. Uh, residents、mm. says the living room floor was still covered with tatami from years of dampness.、Um, so that's his life, and he's. So I think I think you 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 probably you asked this question in the last episode of the foreigners, the images of foreigners in, in Taiwanese. The men with the company, yeah, in Taiwanese culture, are kind of uniform, kind of like vague uniform. Not sure which culture they're from. Yeah, I was think I was comparing in the the foreigners in who appear in mainland lit and then in Taiwanese lit, and I was it, for me it was a favorable comparison to Taiwanese lit. I felt they tended to be less stock types and more like real people. That was my feeling anyway. The Taiwanese, I think we have this. Excitement of every time someone coming from outside island, right?、Um, and and this professor was teaching in the United States, and, and when he when he visits and he will go on, he was he would read his you see his picture on newspaper, and people tend to feel like oh those who are in the United States tend to have a better life.、Um, but you know like and but then as the conversation. Gets deeper. Like he would, he he mentioned how American students responded to his experience、uh, during the Make Forest Movement. Yeah.、Uh, did we? Did you? Did you cover Make Forest Movement in your previous episode? Is that what you? Yeah. No. Good question.、Um, very early on, and then it didn't. It hasn't popped up much since. Um, so very early on, well, no, sorry, episode one was、uh, Diary of a Madman,、really? Kwangren, Kwangren、oh, Ruji,、um, Diary of a Madman,、uh, yeah, 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 Lushun. by Lushun, and then、yeah. um, after that, like two episodes, two, three, four, it was stuff from like late twentieth century and now, but we went right back to May fourth with.、Um, Uh, diary, sorry, another diary.、Uh, Miss Sophie's diary.、Um, what is that in、mm. Chinese? The Dingling's diary of Miss Sophie or Miss Sophia, depending on the translation. Sha Fei Zhi Ruji or something. Do you、Sha、know that? Sha Fei Ruji. Actually,、yeah. no. Oh, it's it's by. Do you know Dingling? The Dingling, the yes. Yeah, it's one of her stories. It's about a young woman、okay. in Beijing, who's、um, going through, the, I guess. Going through the motions of trying to be a modern woman in a modern but also traditional world, it's I don't know. I'm not doing it justice at all. It'd be better <laughs> if I just quoted the episode. But yeah, we did. Th- I did those two.、Um, Lu Shun popped up again. I think episode eleven because、um, uh, I guess、uh, Matt Turner had retranslated his weeds、uh, Yetao, or rather, he'd retranslated Yetao as a. Collection called Weeds because the previous English edition was called Wild Grass. So we went back、mm-hmm. to Lu Shun when he was feeling 
kind of down and out a little bit later on. But apart from that, May 4th in the show has just been references. I haven't done any other. We did um, uh, Lin Yutang. I did Lin Yutang with Paul French, but he's sort of, what's the word, adjacent to May 4th rather than part of oh, it. Okay. Right. Uh, but we, we couldn't hurt reintroducing it for some listeners, I'm sure. Right. But May 4th, like for, for us or for everyone who speaks the language, and May 4th is like French Revolution. Like we mention it a lot. Like everything starts started from there, but then eventually, if if we're being asked what is made forth, like we don't know, like we're like yeah, you know, <laughs> what what is it? Um, I mean, it's just like a, a, a big, it's a concept and a series of movements that we all think we have learned it somewhere, but then um, I believe that over over time, it's being interpreted by the convenience of each political leaders. Like for, I think, I believe Chairman Mao or John Kashyyyk had all um, taken Mate Force as part of the beginning of their of their great civil movement. Right. Um, but I, what, I, what I wanted to say is, I think a few years before Mate Force, May 4th movement was in the year of 1990, 1919, right? That and sounds right. And about four years before that, there was a new culture movement yeah. um, started in also Peking University by a group of students. It's a more elite-oriented movement that, you know, you should learn. It's basically a promotion of, of independent thinking. Um it's considered like the one of the first movement that encourages democracy. Yeah, Mr. Science, but Mr. Democracy, Mr. right? Mr. Science, yeah. But then uh, I think four years later, uh, Mate Force was so big, it's because it actually involves other people. It, it involves non, like people outside of the scholar world. It's it's for it's it looks like it's for everybody. That's why the Communist Party. A claim that their May Force was the beginning of the workers' movement, right? It's true. Yeah. yeah, it's like you. Yeah, they they could say it. You might disagree with their reasons for emphasizing it, but like that, in, at that basic factual level, that they do have their their roots there. So, uh, for for listeners who are scratching their head, um, as to just if you're not quite grasping <laughs> what we're talking about, um, it was this sort of movement, like like um. Nadia is saying among, I guess, at first scholars, intellectual literary figures, and then more widely that began, I believe this, it was when um, at the end of, we're talking about May 4th here, at the end of World War One, China had helped out on the side of the Allies, so had Japan, and um, there was a hope that as recognition, Qingdao, which was at the time a, a German colony in in, in mainland China and Shandong province would right. be taken away from Germany, given back to the Chinese nation or the Chinese people or what have you. But uh, Japan, who had, uh, I, I read, a, read a penguin book on this, um, Britain and Japan led a joint effort to take it off Germany, but Japan did a much better job, took it faster. And at the end of World War One, at the, oh dear, the big conference. Oh, and I almost brought Vienna, this up. Vienna, Vienna. Vienna. Um, yeah. Versailles, I think. Yeah, Versailles. Sorry, Versailles. Yeah. 
Versailles in France, uh, Japan was given, the Japanese empire was given Qingdao. And this was, this did not make the, uh, rightly so, did not make these um, young sort of patriotic lefty-leaning um, intellectuals in China happy. So yeah, this protest movement started and it, like we were saying, became, it, the idea was to sort of modernize, save the country, cast off traditions, uh, bring in Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. And I guess a, if you if one was to critique critique um, May forfeits that it was too ready to reject Chinese traditions, which you could argue had, con- uh, what's the word, consequences further down the line in things like the Cultural Revolution where all old culture had to be destroyed. And this crit- something like this critique pops up in the story. One of the professors is talking about a time when he's giving a talk and he was followed by this, this youth, this young intellectual. And I'm just going to quote the text here going to read like half a two thirds of a page because i have this is where i'm going to name drop freud just just uh for, for listeners who are looking for um for the big big name drops in their podcasts this is this is my one um so quote starts here the young chinese ignorant of the this, and this is the speech being given by the young man i should say the young chinese ignorant of the current conditions in china blindly worshipped western culture and had a superstitious belief in western democracy and science this gave rise to unprecedented confusion in the chinese intellectual world but this generation which had grown up in a patriarchal patriarchal society and which had neither a system of independent thought nor persistence of willpower suddenly found itself bereft of its spiritual sustenance once the confucian tradition crumbled then, like a tribe of parasitical sons, they began to waver and panic. They became lost. They had overthrown Confucius, their spiritual father, carrying the heavy burden of their guilt. They set out on their spiritual sorry, carrying the heavy burden of their guilt. They set out on their spiritual self-exile. Some hurled themselves into the arms of totalitarianism. Some turned back and embraced the remnants of their long since shattered tradition. Some fled abroad and became wise hermits, taking refuge in their isolation. Their, mo- their movement disintegrated, deteriorated. He, en- he ended by saying, some Chinese scholars have called the May 4th movement a Chinese renaissance, but I consider it at best an aborted renaissance. And as I was reading this, I just felt very intellectually tickled because this is stuff I began to learn about a couple of years ago now on this podcast. And there is a link here. Here's my Freud reference. So this reminded me of, admittedly, something I only know through secondary text, uh, totem and a part of Freud's work, Totem and Taboo, um, where he describes, it's hard to know if he's speaking metaphorically or if he's trying to tell us how early humans really lived, but he's got this idea where um, the in the original patriarchal kind of ape-like society, the, the leader was this tyrannical father figure who hoarded all the power and course because it's freud the women for himself and the sons in his version of this pseudo history the sons band together and murder him Uh, but then he haunts them he they because he's gone from the physical world and they can't they can't really erase their father figure from their psyches so he becomes i guess i think the idea is the super super ego the guilt that haunts and polices them so they internalize the father just like how as ad- as children becoming adults, we learn to discipline ourselves. That was the point he was trying to make in a strange Freudian way. And yeah, not, not, to, not that I think I can really apply that cleverly to Chinese history or culture or literature, but 
I just really enjoyed the experience of reading a story which is a dialogue between two intellectuals talking about intellectual concerns, which are relevant uh, both to Chinese history and to like deeper psychological ideas about casting off tradition, or is it even possible to do that without being haunted? So yeah, I don't have a point to make here, just to say I really like this story, partly for that reason, partly because the characters although they're not really strong personalities, they're pretty likable. It's There's not much conflict in this story. You're just sort of, it's maybe a bit like listening to a decent podcast. There's an interesting conversation going on that you enjoy sort of sitting in on. Right. I, I think in, in many ways, I can relate any young person growing up in under such a heavy culture can relate. So, I mean, but in different ways, like I, I was born, raised in this little island and we were required to learn the geography and history of the entire China. So mm. I, so I, you know, somehow I feel this, this um, the, the need for detachment is as sometimes as strong as the need for you know, looking, looking for attachment. Like, you know, this is such a attractive and, um, fascinating, deep culture, but at the same time, you'd be like, isn't it too heavy to carry? So I think that right. many young people felt that way, and that was part of the reason the young university students at Peking University started Make Forest Movement and the New Culture Movement in the first place. They're just like, if we don't, if we continue to carry this 5,000 years history tradition maybe we'll never change. And that's why they promote science um, and, and, and new, new thinking. Yeah, because they, they, just kept, they just kept losing, you know, in everywhere. Right, yeah. I mean, no, I know I, I keep doing this to the point it's ridiculous, but um, being, being Scottish from a country of just 5 million people, we have mm. our national sports football, um, our, the, 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 that's the sport everyone wants us to win at. But the Scottish national team sucks. We, I think we got into the World <laughs> Cup this time, uh, first time in decades. But it's like when you are a country of 5 million people, you, you, if you're not stupid, you know you're a small, relatively insignificant place. And it maybe helps that although we do have certainly quite a long history, there's nothing like those multiple thousands of years that there are for, for, right. for, for China. So yeah, I, I, it is a fairly concrete example of some... <laughs> just some inherent differences in being totally, from one group or the totally. other. Totally, yeah. You'll be like, so now we are, we have this dilemma of um, they're arguing on how should we change the textbook. If it's either like one side, it's like too long, it's 5,000 years of history. Mm. And then if you're just studying the modern history of Taiwan, that'd be too short. That'd be like nothing to study. So yeah. <laughs> you'll be like, yeah, who are we? What are we doing here? Um, yeah. uh, and then that's, it gets more complicated if you're a Taiwanese American or you're you're teaching like the professors um, teaching Professor Yu is teaching Byron in Taiwan, where Professor Wu was teaching Chinese history in America. Like how weird that is. Yeah, it's then, uh, <laughs> Perfect match it's for still, an interesting it's, conversation. It's, it's still, and then, and then I remember uh, Professor Wu was when he said when he was teaching Chinese literature, Chinese history in in America, like he avoids modern history because 
this is something that we still do. Like we just, we, I don't want to start this fight right now. So that's just not uh-huh. t- talk about modern history of China. And so he just, he would just say, he would just teach extreme detail history in Tang Dynasty, that's thousands of years ago, and then about the theater system, like small things, long time ago. And then he was like, and he knew that he published a few books, and then he knew only a PhD student, one or two PhD students, will read it, mm-hmm. you know, in a year. Yeah, and they had it had big dream because that it's it is it it was true. For their generation, that thousand years of this tradition of the um, imperial examination system, the civil examination system, that if you're book smart, you get to lead the country. All this, mm-hmm. all the um, bureaucratic officials were chosen by uh, a series of exams. So it's it was that such tradition is was still true for their generation. If you're you go to universities, you are the leader. You're you have you're you have the duty to to lead the country and and you know do something big. They they truly believed it, and this is and then but then they couldn't. One of their friends couldn't even afford his own funeral. So this is like very sad comparison. To what they once dream of, but also it's his being funny here um, because they are they they were talking about this ideal woman, their beautiful, talented classmate. Right. Long time ago, they didn't get to uh, marry, and then his professor's wife was busy playing mahjong next door, but she actually wins money. I, I was like, this is such. This is a much better wife. I would, I would rather, I would go for this one. Like she actually wins. Mm, yeah, there's an interesting kind of B plot or thing going on, not beneath the surface, but it's like perhaps that's the most important thing that you should be paying attention to, not their sort of big, their fuzzy nostalgia or big philosophical ideas, but like maybe the real thing to measure. The trajectory of their life is their their marriage Funny. or not? Yeah, I guess that's 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 life. There's lots of ways of measuring it. Um, my next question was going to be about um, the the, gra- the whole grass is greener thing. We've touched on that a bit, so I'll skip to the second part of that question. Um, mm-hmm. Can you relate to these guys as being a Taiwanese person? The question was originally written as a Taiwanese person currently living in the USA. But yeah. even better, you've you've since gone back to Taiwan, so you've done you've 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 done uh, both in both directions. So, can you relate to either man's nostalgia here, uh, or wish? Uh, I guess one of them doesn't have nostalgia. He has um, an unfulfilled uh, the, sh- the, the, wish. the short answer is no, but the <laughs> uh, longer answer is that I'm a I'm a very different generation, a very different person than these guys, and right. um, I believe that. Taiwanese people in my generation is have, is you know living a more diverse, grew up in a more diverse lifestyle, and I, in, you know particularly I don't really identify myself as a Chinese person. So and I'm not very I'm not academic. So I mean a lot of things what they say I think I know one or two people or or like ten people who are like that, but they're usually old. <laughs> Older, 
Um, but what's interesting um, about that generation is that he mentioned uh, the grant offered by Harvard University. Like, I think it, for their generation, no one could really afford going to study abroad. And the only way is to compete for the grants. And American universities offer quite a few opportunities for Taiwanese scholars during the time, during, I think, 70s, 60s. Right. And so that's, it's very highly selective. So if you're selected and you get to teach in American university, that's like something to be very proud of. But, you know, in my generation, like we're, uh, you know, thousands of people are studying America. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, I'm not very special. I'm just, and I, I live in New York just because, you know, I, it's fun. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a very, I just, you know, I, you know because I want to be cool. It's, it's something, our, I think that the whole, the value has changed so much. But I think that this American influence is still here. That I just I you know I I grew up watching MTV I the whole the, the culture yeah. I wasn't aware of it but you know if if you know if you you ask me why didn't I go to study in the UK I have no idea I have no idea that's an option um, I was yeah this this reminds me living in Shanghai well during my time in China but maybe Shanghai especially something I noticed quite a lot of parallels between. The Chinese people I met and the American people I met, they were much more similar than I would have ever first have expected. And one thing I felt they had in common was the tendency to think that the Western world and America are synonyms. And that if you're going to go from your country to the West, that you are by default going to the States. And I was often puzzled as to why like um, there are certainly lots of other options. It's not the only developed country in the West by any means, but I, the more I, time I spent living there and at Shanghai High School, where a lot of the time I was helping the students prepare their um, American University statement applications, I realized mm -hmm. maybe one big reason it's it's I think the the number that are going the the cool the cool kids like you, you want to go hang out with the hipsters in Brooklyn or whatever are a minority. The biggest the biggest reason I was seeing for wanting to go to the states was the the prestige of the universities. Um, Harvard and, and Yale and so on, you know, rightly so. Those are great universities, but that was the big motivation I saw for going to the States, either that or just kind of cultural hegemony, which makes it the default because it's the most present in people's minds. I think it's just, uh, all these are, are under one huge umbrella of American diplomatic strategy. Right. And they put a lot of money on this. You know, prevailing of American American culture is their full time job. So you know, part of the prestige university rankings. I mean, they create the rankings. <laughs> right. Otherwise, you know, you know, like, how do you know if a school is good or not? I mean, you check U.S. news; it's U.S. news, and then the best schools among the top hundred best university in the world, and ninety nine of them are American schools. Hmm. So you know, how's that possible? So, you know, I, I know, um, you know, it's just the whole world, the whole planet is just a, a huge capitalist ger you know, germ that we're in. This is usually oh. the point of an episode where I go, oh, God, and then we go to the next question. <laughs>
um yeah no. oh capitalism capitalism yeah 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 it's uh, i've heard it's a thing that exists um next, i know eh? <laughs> next next uh, next section so it's the rest of the type a people so rather than i think i said stupidly earlier that we're doing three stories and no we're not we, we did those two and now we're going to do a third section which sort of tries to hit on the other, other sort of the other types of characters because i was noticed i noticed a couple uh one that we really can't ignore and you mentioned them early on is the army men um in yeah. this case it's mostly ranking officers big big guys from the army there's quite a few of them there may be like if you were to break the characters up into types you'd have um ladies like taipan chin and then you'd have army guys um and they're often sad quite sad figures um sometimes i suppose you could well i suppose you could attribute that to losing a war and wanting to go back even though you know that's just sort of a fantasy if you're being honest with yourself mm-hmm. uh, but i wanted to ask you have you met such people have you met um these ex military figures as older men or by proxy uh, met their ch- their children right mostly i I I was an, uh, that aware when I was younger, but then I realized so they're high-ranking officers. They had you know they usually live uh, up on the hills in a in a nice house mansions. They have cars. So when I was uh, in my teen age, I hung out with very cool people, rock and roll producers, um, where they just it, it, they actually produce the like best-selling records. Uh, we don't. We don't set records anymore. CDs or music albums, music records, albums, records music cool. records is good. Yeah, the, it's timeless. They, they they actually yeah they actually produce records. Right. Um, so I I when I was a, a teenager, I hung out at music label a lot, and those producers they like to show off how many records they have at home. One of them had he's my godfather actually, and he had right. he said he had. Um, 20,000 records at home. So I wasn't aware that means money. Like I was just, I didn't know how much I get. I I couldn't afford any of them. But then years later, I just realized how wealthy his family was. Yeah. Even just to have that much space, never mind the money. And then the access to it, because it wasn't Mm. that easy to buy all those records. so then I realized, oh, their their parents were all somehow related to high-ranking officers' families. So they're, and then they they spoke Mandarin, you know, they're Mandarins. Mm. So that was so actually a lot of important artwork or creative works are done by the second generation of high-ranking officers because they had uh, more access to uh, the culture and the education. And then there are lower-ranking soldiers who may or may not be educated before so actually some of my elementary school teachers are are incredibly old to us like we were like how could he still be teaching and he he usually had accent that we no one understood so we mocked these old teachers a lot so they're they are um veterans right if they know how to read and write or they had a degree before they would sometimes they get a teaching job and you know being surrounded by kids like us we're just like who are these guys and then we 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 couldn't understand why he said mm. um and then the word the phrases the words are all, all different 
And there are even lower ranking officers who couldn't even read. And they have they have this military don't like villages to put the the veterans and they're usually here uh, without their wives and family. And if and then when they're here long enough, they'll marry someone much younger and not 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 talking to each other for the entire life. So that's a t- they're just typical stories. Right. Yeah. So sort of tragic, disjointed lives, I guess. Right. But. You know, it had become somehow, sometime, somehow, it's interesting that the the military village culture also became part of the nostalgic thing that people will. That I mean, because they're all pretty much all gone, so these old villages had become, um, how do you call it, cultural landscape that people go visit, right. have coffee, have coffee, you know, have Instagram photos. <laughs> Interesting. I I can't think of an equivalent anywhere anywhere here. No, the the closest equivalent I can think of in anywhere near where I am is this is mm, this is maybe arguably kind of something to do with being an island nation. So just on the other side of the river that my hometown Dundee is on, there are um, block large blocks of concrete on the beach, and they are. They've probably been left there because they're part of a their historical mark uh, on on the landscape. They're they're anti tank defenses from World War Two when we thought that there might be a Nazi German landing somewhere on the east coast. But there's not really any sad figures attached with them, and there's nothing there's nothing hip about them. They're more just sort of ge- geology now. But yeah, I, I can, uh, they, I can, they can look, they can look hip if you uh, if you use the right filter. Totally, Instagram yeah. filter. Yeah, yeah, if I sit my girlfriend on the right one and get the right angle, definitely. Yes, a, a girl and the filter, and everything will look Instagramable. Absolutely, glad we agree. Um, okay, um, so we talked about we talked about the army men. Next one, uh, the 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 lower classes. So we have actually talked about them a lot. In the episode, but I did, as I did mention earlier, the majority of the type of people that uh, Mr. Bai chooses to zoom in on are, are wealthier people, either wealthy in the present or they've just got sort of the after effects of being wealthy. They've got the, the social signs and symbols and so on. Uh, but we, there are some lower, uh, some less wealthy figures in the book or people who were just not so wealthy on the mainland. Um, right. They are there. They're just outnumbered. Um is there anything we can say we haven't said already about class and wealth and hierarchy in the book? The thing is, they might not be outnumbered, they, but they yeah. are just in the background. They're just not right. visible. Right. They're not the like, main characters. Yeah. Stories. So if you pay attention, that usually the driver, like the worker, the, the maid, they're the lower class. They are the lower class people. Um, so I was, I, I'm trying to think of, how did it come here? Like usually, when when mainlanders move here, they, they 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 brought their own maids or their own. Their well, sometimes it's just, yeah. It's just like um, if they're a, a lower, if they're a higher ranking officer, it's usually their their subordinates who doesn't have a family, and they just like he just they they ha- they have to offer him a place to sleep, and it's usually and usually the driver. 
Yeah, there was a Chinese word which is preserved in the English translation, which I hadn't come across before living in China, but it's all over this book. Oh, I need to remind myself what it was. Word? What? Uh, what it's like a sort of a military underling, sort of just like what you were describing. Fuquan. Fuquan. Maybe Fuquan. 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 Fuquan is like vice officer. Right. Yeah, the translators preserve that one, although being Wei Giles, it's a K, a K where maybe it should be a G. Fu Guan. Fu Guan. Yeah, Fu Guan. Yeah. yeah, that's weird. I, I don't know why he did that, but uh, it's usually his second, his, 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 how do you call it? Um, like second in command? Yeah, second in command. Right, yeah. I think, I think if I was a translator, I would make the decision to go for those spellings because it, it's a Taiwanese, it, it marks it as sort of Taiwanese literature and translation. Um, a little bit like if you're reading Chinese and Taiwanese names in English, the Wade Giles spellings will be a big clue or the, or the little hyphen like between uh, uh, the hyphen. Yeah. The hyphen and the Wade Giles are the clues. The person is from Taiwan. So it's got an advantage in that sense, but the disadvantage is the, the spellings don't match the same right. The hyphen. I lost my the hyphen in my name in New York. They don't accept hyphens. Oh right, the computer system doesn't. doesn't <laughs> they don't. But I was like, it's okay, take it away. It, it's really not part of my name. Hyphen. It's a hyphen, you know. Mm. Um, and the other one is the uh, the apostrophe. So I'm looking. I'm on a page two ninety, which has um, Tang. Uh, I guess it. Yeah, it's Tang as in Tang Dynasty, but oh, right. it's it. If I didn't know China, in fact, I remember this as a kid coming across things describing China, and I'd be like, "What's that Tang? Am I like why? Why is there a gap there between the T and the A?" And I still don't understand why. I I don't I actually no. don't. If I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to pronounce it if I hadn't known the the actual word. Mm. Um, so that I think the translation here is quite academic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they follow a very strict, very strict rule of academic translation. Yeah, and the in the English edition, it's it is a, I think it's Columbia University Press. It's an academic press, and uh, like the, there are some really good um, opening and end like essays or commentaries. But you can kind of tell the intended reader is someone with some foreknowledge, um, some some grounding in not just, uh, not just like someone who knows Taiwan, but someone who knows sort of literary studies as well it's for that right. sort of reader which is probably fine for listeners of the show because they're all very yeah. educated erudite individuals <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna yeah i know I, I just realized it's it's published by columbia i'm gonna columbia. stop making yeah i'm gonna stop making comments now because it's my it's my alma mater right right yeah. <laughs> i have to stop <laughs> i i once uh, i once did that um i was I, I upset. It was the episode with Paul French, and um, I we were talking about Lin Yutang's story uh, in old saints and sinners, um, colonial Shanghai, and I was making jokes because I was my my girlfriend was uh, had just finished her PhD in St Andrews, which is a weird town in Scotland because mm -hmm. it's mostly populated by wealthy English and American and international mm -hmm. uh, students. So I was making poking fun at it, calling it you know, the local treaty port, colonial holding, English holding in Scotland. 
And he's like, you can't make fun of St. Andrews. They've got a new <laughs> Chinese department in the university that we need to be. Yeah, it's right. Like, it's like, but yes, that's true, Paul, but you can't stop me. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, no, I had, I made so much jokes uh, when I was on campus. I just, we just like talking shit in Chinese and I see a smiling white guy <laughs> walking by, like, you know, and he's wearing a Peking University t-shirt. Or <laughs> Like you don't, it's a, it's a very dangerous place to be. Uh huh. Yeah, I was gonna say the the guy who's in charge of that department, Gregory Lee. Um, I yeah, I wouldn't want to rub him the wrong way. I just assume because he's mm. over a certain age, he can't possibly be listening. But yeah, a little bit like you, the, the guy <laughs> with the Beida T-shirt. That sometimes assumptions uh, are very are bad choices. Right. Yeah. Did you? Did you read any of the other stories in Taipei People or any of uh, his Paishanyo's other works? Yeah, I read I read the whole book once. I reread mm -hmm. Winter Nights and Taipanchin for this episode, and I believe I reread at least one of the um, the essays. But other Paishanyong, no, I did in my episode on Tio Miao Jin. I did get a bit of an education in Crystal Boys from my guest. Connor Stewart, because mm -hmm. he wanted to talk about other, well, I guess the, for whatever reason it arose in conversation. Because uh, I think Crystal Boys has a sort of a parallel story in Taipei People about, yes, the, it came up because we we're talking about the park. By chance, I visited the park Crystal Boys is set in when I was visiting Taipei. And we talked a little bit about oh, that. Oh, right. Uh, is it Xingongyuan? I, I think so. I think it has a name that's yeah, yeah, yeah. numbers now. Yeah, or, or bar, like 228. Right. Like the older, like, now you can tell I'm an older Taipei person because I still call it New Park. It, it was the New Park. That was the old name. Um, yeah, so there are a couple of uh, famous gay sites in around this neighborhood, like the park, 228 Memorial Park, and the red, is it called the red building? Hongbo, mm. the red pavilion. Right. And Ximenting, there's there used to be a McDonald's there, and they're all they're always dating, you know, younger boys there. So right. these are this so at this I think these places have become iconic because of his writing, his his Chris, uh, especially Crystal Boys. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's I, great when a, a city has a writer who um, who writes about real places you can visit. It's um, not every writer does I mean, that. And what's surprising is that they're still here. Right, yeah. The places are still here. And Mr. Mr. Pai is still with us as well, right? Uh, he's still here, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask, like, some of the... Because some of the stories are very... Like, the references to the older, the ancient Chinese text are it's just so... Could it... I mean, what's your reading experience? Yeah, that? Um well, did you you like, you've, read the, you've read the English translation and the original? Those references right. you're referring to, I how have lots of them been preserved, or have any of them just sort of been glossed over? It's I think I think I did the best job to preserve the references, but some of it. Um, what I am curious about is how did you read the waking from the dreams? Um, that's uh no I, so, so yeah so to answer your your original question like the uh, ancient chinese or maybe not ancient medieval and 
yeah, older yeah. medieval and ancient Chinese lit I've read is pretty slim. I've read uh, two of the classics and a little bit of, wait a minute, hang on. Journey to the West, Hong Meng, oh, yeah. uh, Shui Zhuan. What is number four? Oh, Three Kingdoms, Sanguo. Um, yeah. Right. So I've read all of a translation of Hong Meng, and I could feel some of that that energy in some of the stories maybe walking in the garden uh, wandering in the garden there's things there that reminded me of Hong Meng. specific mm. re- but yeah i know that there that's a, that is a that's a story from or that that's a that is a a song from a quite old chinese opera a friend of the podcast Dylan Levi King sent me a message about it uh, mm. on twitter tell me a few things because I did a bonus episode of this show, which is up on Patreon, uh, listeners take notes, um, where I was I not talking knowledgeably about the context of, of the use of that song in the story, because I know nothing. I Yeah, the short answer is yeah. I, I'm pretty, pretty ignorant of this stuff. But um, that sort of common th- recurring theme in, in not just Chinese literature, literature, literature in general, but I think it's strong in Chinese lit, like the confusion or blurring of dreams and reality what what is life this life that we're walking through i felt that strongly in her story and obviously it's not hard to feel it because she's flicking between the past and the present so i specific references not so much but sort of allusions Mm -hmm. to those other literary themes and forms uh sure yeah um allusions to things in history i think i caught quite a lot but the problem is with asking someone what references did you catch is they can only tell you the ones they caught if they didn't if they didn't see it they can't measure it you know right but sometimes if you missed if if you couldn't sometimes like if you couldn't miss if you mistook the reference then you don't know why what the story is about i mm. think that's especially true for um the let's see Wandering in the garden, waking from a dream. Because I think that, so this is, you know, this is from, this is a reference taken from a Chinese opera, but like that's, there are different types of Chinese opera. And right. Kun, Kun is considered the higher art. Like it's more, you know, it's more difficult. And right. that, like fewer people have access to it. It's it's not, as opposed to like street art. Some of the operas like you see in the street, it's very plain language and the stories are very easy to understand. But like Quinn is it's it's for someone like Mister Bai, who like only he can understand. He can appreciate. It. Usually, like most people just doze off the right. whole show. So he is known for for being a Kun opera lover and that that differentiates so he used a lot of Kun references and I was uh, forced to learn some of it um, which is very uh, for me it's very sleep inducing very <laughs> slow super slow um, right. <laughs> but people who love it love it right yes got it I think the references of Kun opera repeatedly appear in his stories, and that really represents his class. Like he, the social—I shouldn't say class, but a status that he represents. Yeah, this no, because like going to a theater, watching an opera that's only accessible for 
like 200 people is a, is, is a privilege. Right. So, yeah. I, so under, and then understanding such reference um, as a reader is also, also means something. Like you're not even educated, you you have the you have the luxury to know and then the the, the understanding of all mm. to know such a, a a delicate it's a very delicate performing art. Right. As opposed to me, just you know, I'm watching MTV, hip hop. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> I I think uh, uh, something that is. What's the word adjacent to that thing you were describing? So me, me, a foreigner, not grounded in the nuances of Chinese culture, missing these things, despite the translation of the work. I think there's another thing a reader, a reader of translated lit, and I think I'm definitely one of those these days um, can miss out on our recurring themes in an author's work, like you were just describing. So I'll give you an example um, that's close to my sort of interest as a reader. Uh, I love. Chinese sci-fi, and I've read just the mm-hmm. no, not 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 close to all of it yet because there's some the Odysseian books in English that I've not read yet. But I'm really quite well versed in not Chinese sci-fi per se, but Chinese science fiction in English translation, which means there's a lot of pieces that I've missed because it's mm-hmm. not available for me because my Chinese is not good enough to read a page of a book, never mind a book. Um, so there's lots of authors who've only got one one novel or zero novels and only short stories available in English. So just plucking one easy example, um, Hao Jingfang, who's most famous for Folding Beijing, uh, Beijing Zhidia, no. which is just like a, mm-hmm. what do they call it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like a novelette, they call it in English. So not even really novel. long enough to be a novel, I think is the idea. So sort of a quite long form short story. Uh, so I've read that. Uh, translated by Ken Leo, and then one of her sci-fi novels, which is available in English, uh, Vagabonds, Liu Lang Ma Arsa is the Chinese name. But she has a lot of other, or at least some other books out there in which are not translated to English yet. And there's one which you can get in Japanese, um, linking back to what we're saying earlier, possibly other languages, but certainly not English, which is a literary fiction novel. So I guess realist, or at least not clearly in any genre. It's called Born in 1984. Is the at least that's the, the Chinese name is is the same or more or less the same. Born in 1984, and that's her literary part of her persona as a literary writer. So, and there's some writers who are, who are like that. Famously, there's a guy, a Scottish author, funnily enough, who I always bring up, Ian Banks, who was mm-hmm. kind of had a split personality as a writer. He had these literary realist works, which were maybe like a third of his output or half, I think a third. And then the rest was like really nerdy space operas. Um, okay. And if you were reading both, you might see common themes or not, but I'm sure in Hao Jing Fang, you'd see common themes because her science fiction writing does have, it doesn't feel like it's strictly for a genre, it has a sort of literary grounding, but you're not going to see what those common themes are if you're me, because you're only reading a tiny snippet of all her <laughs> output. Just like with Mr. Bai here, I even if I was a master of Chinese opera, I couldn't know from reading this one book the full significance of his use of Kun opera here because I don't. I suppose I could have access to the, a fuller picture if other of his books are available in English, but you know the example still holds because right. they're not on bookshelves here. Right, and also that's uh, so. In, I think this is leading to our our 
next question on um, remember I mentioned the debate between the native the native Taiwanese culture and the Chinese culture, mm. the classy Chinese culture. So Kun is considered as a very refined culture and it is it was generally believed that Taiwanese opera was more vulgar or street art style. Um, so if you if you you know you go to a, a a more expensive, a higher end theater to watch Kun, that like Bai Bai Xianyong work is considered more refined, higher class. And there was, a, I believe, in the eighties, there was a debate between the native nativism of Taiwanese literature that you know what is Taiwan, what what represents Taiwanese literature. Since they've been debating since the seventies, and and still have no answer to it, uh, we don't have to rush to. Have a conclusion tonight, um, no. but I just wanted to bring this up that you know if if you know anyone just brings up like what is Taiwanese literature again, you'll be like, yo, I don't know, <laughs> no one knows. You know they've been talking about this. Um, so the nativism, the natives that they um, they criticize the people like Pai Xian, you know, are outsiders and they're the they colonize us. They're the you know people with privilege. They use a, 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 a colonial language that's Chinese, but what's what's interesting and probably sad is that the people who are debating, even if they represent native literature, um, they couldn't speak, they couldn't do this debate in full Taiwanese language. I couldn't. Yeah. Um, we've yeah we've all we've all been this we've all lost uh, the original the dialect. So, but I, and they're also, I was being criticized uh, for using mixed languages because I have, uh, they, say, they, they, they say my, my Chinese writing is not Chinese enough because I, mm. you know, I'm, I'm trilingual. I use, I use a lot of not English words, but like some grammatically Western where I use a lot of Japanese, uh, Japanese Chinese words, mm. which I think like I it shouldn't be wrong because language is a living thing, and this is how we speak now. If I if I'm writing about myself, it should be okay to mix languages. But in where where you can see in Taipei people that the mix, the mixed use of languages is also happening there, and of course you have to read original to know it. Uh, I yeah. I, just, I I don't know if any translator is able to 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 present that in the translated version. Yeah. But I think he he captured that. He does capture that. Even if if even they're all from the mainland, but you know China is a huge country, and they're all coming from different social classes of different provinces and villages. So they all they 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 speak different languages. Right. Yeah, I noticed in while while reading the translation, there were some characters who were signaled in the translation as maybe being provincial or less wealthy. They had sort of a there was a folksy style to their English, and I kind of got the sense it was because if you have if you want to have a folksy style, it has to be pinned to some geographic place. And among most translators, and as a reader, I've heard it said and generally agreed that's just a huge no no. If you try and represent, I don't know, a, a Beijinger by having him speak in like Cockney style English, it's just going to be cringeworthy and awful. But I thought actually in this translation, it wasn't too bad. 
little weird here or there, but maybe the only good yeah. example I've seen of like, I don't know, I think there were maybe a couple of characters who were, they were servants and I got the feeling that their sort of version of English being used was like uh, African-Americans from the American South, which um, there's a million ways you could say, pick a point at that and call it politically incorrect. Yeah. But at least in terms of pure literary aesthetics, it didn't read too weirdly. It, it worked mm. surprisingly, I thought. Um, I could probably, I was itching to launch into another screed about Scotland and not being able to speak one's, no, no. Having, I'd like to, but we've been going a while and um, I, I know I should be having my dinner. So maybe we can save that for another time. Um, but yeah, let's get on to the miscellaneous section now. Um, so right. first miscellaneous question, if you can suggest a Chinese or Taiwanese word of the day uh, for, this, for, to, for this book, or for any of the stories in this book, is there any you would you would go for? I would go for dream. Um, in right. dream in Mandarin Chinese is mong. In right. Taiwanese, it's the same word but pronounced as mong. I'm trying to think. We might we might have done that for another another um, episode. But it's such a great. It's one of my favorite characters, possibly because it was drilled into my brain by all the Zhongguo Mong posters in Shanghai oh. where I was living. Oh. Oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> maybe, but that doesn't stop it being a nice character. But you can, uh, I think this time we can write it in in traditional characters. There we go. That's how we stick it to the man. So your next question is: If Taipei people was a drink? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> how did you come up with this question? <laughs> uh, laziness. <laughs> laziness. Um, um, yeah. So it's it's a plum, a green plum season in. May in Taiwan, and all my friends, they're all my hipster friends, they just start, sh you know, Instagramming their plum wine photos, their homemade plum wine photos. Excellent. Basically, how you make it is that you have um, excessive amount of green plum, fresh green plum. You wash them and just soak them in vodka or gin, and you wait for. It. Uh, wait until you can't wait. Um, it's already it's already alcohol, so you can actually drink anytime. But, but it's better to it's better to soak it for three months. Oh wow, three months! Three months, and you know you add you should add sugar so it won't go bad. And and you know in three months you can see you can enjoy plum, green plum wine. I I learned that this is. The, the cool Taiwanese kids are doing these days. I just learned it this time because my sister, now she's working from home and she has about like a jar of plum wine next to her where mm -hmm. the cameras cannot cannot see that she's working from home with a bottle of wine. I um I have a little sister who's fourteen, so <laughs> I'm kind of planning ahead in six years when I'm thirty four when I need a like a. I need an insight on what, what all the hipsters are doing. Presumably hipsters will have been replaced by something else by then, but that's going to be my right. source of insight to know what I should be doing to stay young. <laughs> okay. Um, or, or you can, you can do, invent your own. You know, I'm sure the hipsters, hipster culture in the future belongs to the old people because we're just so, so many of us. Right. The, f yes. the future is old. I'll be like one of the Taipei people. I'll be looking at the next iteration of the 2010, but yeah. right. 
doing whatever two people yeah. from then are doing in 2040. Um, last, last miscellaneous question. Are you working on anything just now? And are there any works, websites, um, creations to which we should point the listeners? Uh, I, I share, I'll share my website. Will you, will you post it on the page? Yeah, I'll put it in the show oh. notes for listeners. So yeah. like the episode but description. That's like a, an older edition of what I'm doing. Uh, I should probably update it now. I'm writing a, a movie script, uh, like, like I mentioned before, a movie script of how the Republic Chinese government secretly move million uh, million kilometers of gold uh, to Taiwan uh, in 1949. And um, I, I this year I'm doing an experiment with an independent publisher by publishing my novels in electronic first edition. Mm, cool. uh, just just so um, I have this inspiration from music industry that you know they they release digital singles just to try out and the electronic release itself is the advertisement so i was like you know we should do this and just publish an ebook and since now people are stuck where they are they probably, it's not very easy to put to to buy a physical book so let's do electronic books first mm. and then you know when and then i i, I serialize uh, s- uh, stories on sub different subjects so so far i am working on this third one the first one is freezing eggs you know, like women's female eggs. Right. Um, the second one is polyamorous a oh. story about a polyamorous community, which I know for real in uh, New York. In New York, uh, right? Yeah, they're all there in San Francisco and New York. And uh, the third one, um, it, which is due in a few days, I hope I can get it. It's about the difference. It's about um, a, a man marrying a woman he met on social um, dating app that there are 40 years in age differences oh gosh yeah (laughs) these are all true stories based on true stories right um so these are my my stuff just for the listeners um who are not going to check the show notes um what is the web address we should direct them to okay uh the web address is www.office-sola.com yeah, officesola.com. Office Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, that is all my miscellaneous questions, but is a cheat because there is actually one more miscellaneous question. Two more, actually. Um, <laughs> Further reading. One, yeah. Um, if listeners want more like type A people, where would you direct them? And I know that I might be throwing a spanner in your works here, just mentioning this now, but this doesn't have to be anything from Taiwanese lit, Chinese lit. This could could be anything, really. Well, I actually have uh, my favorite Taiwanese author, which is usually considered a counterpart of Mr. Bai, um, is Huang Chunming. Um, he has a famous, I mean, he has many famous work, but uh, one of the most famous stories, which also made into a movie, is called The Taste of an Apple. Mm. Um, so he represents, I think he represents the natives, the, na- the native side of the same period of time of Taipei people. Um, he so the taste of apple is is a, a story of a guy who got hit by an American man and but then you know but eventually the American man send him apples to apologize and that was the first time they taste an apple so they feel like he being hit by a car oh. so he's 
yeah. So he's um, so Huang Huang Chengming. His stories is always very. He has a dark humor and he's very warm and funny. Um, he has many many stories like that. Like it's sad, but in in the same time you feel a lot of warmth. So and he's his story is full of lower class people. Fantastic. Um, so you can you can be a nice counterpart. Like after reading Taipei People, <laughs> maybe a taste of apple. So that's my recommendation. And so it, it can sort of like you know a, another piece of a puzzle. You can have probably a better fuller image of what Taiwan looked like right. in the seventies. Um, it's just occurred to me what I what my recommendation would be here. I I can't believe I didn't mention this. Um, it's a possible influence on this book. Um. But certainly, if if you like little snapshots Dubliner. of Dubliners, you got it before I could say it. Yeah. Um, if listeners don't know what Dubliners is, um, they might recall on the episode I had with Connor Stewart, our our, our first Irish guest. I think. I think so. If you don't, you don't count Yanga, who、um, lived in Ireland for a while, and I think possibly has an Irish husband. Then he would be our first Irish guest. He mentioned the influence of James Joyce on Taiwanese lit, and I was not、mm-hmm. sure how. One would measure that, but here's this book's one example because、um, I think Dubliners, which is also, if listeners don't know,、uh, lots of short stories about various individual characters. All and what links them is they're all in Dublin, and I can't say more than that because I haven't read it. <laughs> but、um, no, no one finishes it. I mean,、right. I started, it, not sure. I don't know where I stopped, but、um, it's okay. Yeah,、uh, yeah. I wish I could say more, but I can't.、Um, Next question: What are you reading? What are you reading just now, if anything? I was reading something called the European Union Wall. Oh, that's fun! Doesn't doesn't apply to me anymore. I know because I had to finish、uh, all the prerequisites before the school starts. So、right. that's my my life is miserable right now for that、um, because I just realized that. There are twenty-seven member states. Right. They all have different laws.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. The UK is not one of them. No.、Uh, not anymore. No. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah. Something I almost mentioned when we were talking about the burden of、um, being from a country with a lot of history, a lot of people, a lot of land is in a as a European. From you know, most European countries are small, but there is perhaps the burden of some kind of collective identity. But you know, you could do what、um, the English electorate did and drag all of the UK out of that collective identity. But yet, you're haunted by it. There's there's no escape because you can't build a、right. big rocket on the island and move it somewhere else.、Um, <laughs> anyway, I'll stop griping. This is a Chinese lit podcast, not a British podcast. No, well, I mean, I actually I didn't expect this. I didn't know you're Scottish, but the the Scottish identity is something that we can we can probably explore a little more. For sure, on、um, this this no how to call it comparative identity、yeah. crisis. Whoever my my next guest is Daryl Stark.、Uh, I don't know if he's Canadian、oh. or American, but yeah, I'll I'll bombard the poor guy with my Scottishness even more. <laughs> maybe he's he's maybe he's French Canadian. You know,、oh, right. maybe he's not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we all we all have another site. Mm. Well, if if he is Canadian, the a lot of the Canadians who aren't a lot of sorry a lot of the white Canadians who aren't French in their roots are often Scottish. So there could be he might want、right. to hear it.、Um, what was I going to say? Yeah,、uh, not not spotting my name is Scottish. So we're talking about 
recognizing Taiwaneseness in the hyphens and stuff and the the way Giles and, and missing certain things just by virtue of your background and not not I'm not trying to be mean here and nasty um, but if someone was from the Anglosphere and they saw the name Angus Stewart they'd say your you, your name must be fake it's cartoonishly Scottish Angus is like the most oh, Scottish yeah. male name just about. The only way you could make me more Scottish is if you put a Mick or a Mac in front of my surname, Angus McStewart. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's this thing I would assume wrongly that anyone who sees the name Angus would know. But of course, that's that's completely false. Most A lot of Chinese friends, when they type my name, it becomes Algus because they associate right. my name with August, not, not right. with um, ancient Celtic traditions. Because why would they? So isn't isn't Scottishness too much for Chinese people? Like random Chinese. People? Yeah, it's that's the thing. It's a tiny country. It's stupid for me to expect everyone in the world to to know it. Right, but the law system in Scottish is Scottish law system is very special. It's one of a kind. Yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying it. <laughs> no, yeah, it's we, a mix, the mix of, uh, of of yeah, common law and civil law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I, much trouble. I don't know why you why you want to do it. So much trouble <laughs> because yeah. it's a little bit like the way Giles in Taiwan because it makes us different from the English. That's why we oh, we don't conform. Okay. For sure, that's got to be it. Yeah, I remember um, being introduced to that. Doing, I think it was in debate club in school. Uh, there was a debate as to whether Scotland should keep having a different jury system from England, and the debate begins on, with like begins with um, the principles of. The different systems, and then ends up in why? Why, why did we? Why did we do this? What's the point in being different? But we all know it's because we don't want to be English, even though we're not as different as we think we are. You know, right? We don't exist the second we stop fighting. So there you go. Good metaphor for life. I think it was does serve as a good closing line. I think so. Yeah. So um, let's keep on fighting, listeners. You guys keep on fighting too, lest you blink out of existence. You too. Yeah. All right. You must and be starving. I am. Yeah. I probably will blink out of existence if I don't say thank you and farewell. All right. We've reached the end of the show. Now, there's no particularly different plugs for me to do this time around compared to previous last few times around. So I'll, I'll try and keep it quick. Although, don't I always say that? So social media let's do that first so twitter is at angus likes words that's just my own personal one but i tweet mostly about chinese lit and the show uh, the show has an instagram at trchfix so that's t-r-c-h-f-i-c good place to stay up to date or to get in touch with feedback great place to talk to other fans of the show is the discord the trchfix discord uh, there's a link to that in the show notes and to support the show tangibly which means with your hard-earned RMB or usd or gbp or diddle dd um you can go to patreon.com slash trchfic t-r-c-h-f-i-c and there's half of a hundred bonus episodes some absolutely marvelous um delights waiting there for you including a bonus episode on this book which i alluded to uh during my conversation with nadia that that's up there so you can hear my very uninformed ramblings about um wandering in the garden waking from a dream and the other stories in the book, you can see just how much my thoughts change between then and this episode. Um, hopefully you'll see an improvement. Uh, but yeah, that's that's all I have to say. So of course there is one thing left and that is the best thing you can do for the show and that is to spread the word. So tell your teacher, tell your friends, tell your fuquan or should it be fuguan, 
Who knows? I do. It should be Fu Guan, but, you know, Wade Giles still has powerful influence in certain parts of the world. So there you go. And until we can deal with that, Zai Jian.